This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, questions are raised over Australia's multi-million dollar donation to Solomon Islands for hosting the Pacific Games. There's no doubt we're doing it because China's doing it. It's a sign of the, the risks that we face if we really uh, reorient our aid program, you know, to be used in a kind of strategic competition with China. And the World Health Organization recalls contaminated cough syrup in Marshall Islands and Micronesia. We find out what the risks are for families living there. And the head of the United Nations Population Fund calls for women's empowerment in the Pacific. But people can start to look at you as somebody vulnerable that can be victimized. So if you don't know your rights... And if we haven't helped you to stand up for yourself, some random person may think that they can knock you over. And we have to make sure that this girl stands up. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, a New Zealand pilot kidnapped by the West Papuan Liberation Army has urged Indonesia to stop bombing the area where the separatist group is holding him. In a new video released by his captors yesterday, pilot Philip Mertens also says he is alive and well, despite being held hostage for nearly three months. For more on this story, joining us now is supervising producer of the ABC's Indonesia team, Erwin Rinaldi. Erwin, uh, good morning to you. Good morning, Priyanka. How are you today? Yes, very good. Um, now, Edwin, first, I, I wanted to play um, you an excerpt from the video that was released uh, yesterday. Let's take a listen. It's uh, almost three months since OPM uh, kidnapped me from Paro. Uh, as you can see, I'm still alive. I'm uh, healthy. I've been eating well, uh, drinking. Uh, Indonesia's been uh, dropping bombs in the area of the last uh, week. And... Uh, Please, uh, that's, there's no need. It's dangerous for me and everybody here. Um, Edwin, I wanted to ask you about that last um, bit that Philip Mertens, the, the uh, uh, captured uh, um, pilot, mentions there. He, he mentions bombing by Indonesia in the area. Mm-hmm. What do we know about that bombing, Edwin? So what we do, we do, we know so far, uh, this is based on uh, our talk with the Fritz Ramende. Fritz Ramende is the representative for the Papuan region uh, of the National Human Rights Commission of Indonesia. Last night, he said that uh, the bombing could be an airstrike that was uh, being uh, carried out by the Indonesian military in the location to keep the armed group, the West Papua Liberation Army, away and could mobilize the Indonesian military. So he said um, it is a very concerning of uh, giving um, testimony using the word bombing. And also it could also means to attract more uh, international attention, Priyanka. Mm, yes, very interesting, because what has been the reaction uh, to this video by the Indonesian government? Have we got anything further that they've said about this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In the in the last 24 hours, we've been following and also we uh, asking questions to the Indonesian military and the Indonesian government. And uh, the Indonesian military actually saying that uh, they're still investigating and studying the video released uh, yesterday, while the um, spokesperson of the uh, Indonesian foreign ministry saying that at this stage, there is nothing to respond yet. So it seems like um, like many experts say that Indonesian government is actually taking seriously about this matter, 
but the approach is still military operation and that is being criticized by many human rights activists and international organization mm. can you tell us more about that criticism what what what, what are they saying uh, what they're saying that um, Indonesia should understand that uh, from this case what what they what the um, West uh, Papua Army liberation is they want to have like a negotiation mm. and uh, that hasn't been uh, um, done or that has been very success um, uh, to be to be held by the Indonesian government and uh, seeing the experience of the Indonesian government dealing with the free Aceh movement for example right mm. um, back in 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 the 90s it was the negotiation was carried out in Helsinki so um, Human Rights Commission of Indonesia in Papua, Fritz, saying that um, it is just a matter of choosing the right place. The parties, uh, both parties, like the, uh, the, uh, the armed groups and also the Indonesian government, they just need to choose a country, choose a place and choose a person. And even uh, choosing the right international organization to be, uh, to be um, in the middle uh, or, or to be like the one who will carry out the discussion and uh, to have that, um, to have that talk mm. that what, 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 what we need. It's more like what about the negotiation. Yes, yes, like highlighting the yeah, peaceful negotiations um, yes, to, to settle this conflict. I mean, it's also interesting to see, you mentioned before about, um, you know, some allegations that this is a, a stunt to get attention to the um, case in, in West Papua, this video at least. And it's yeah. interesting to see that parts of the video released were in Indonesian and some of it was in, in English that the pilot mm-hmm. spoke about. Oh, what mm-hmm. did you make of that, Erwin? Why do you think it might be might have been released in both of these languages? I think it's very obvious the key message is to convey the message for Indonesian government, even though he's saying that I'm alive and I'm well, but also at the same time, um, uh, you know, by choosing the word like bombing, it's just like to uh, sort of like saying that uh, please do not attack us because also like uh, for uh, human rights uh, activists in Indonesia mentioned that if the Indonesian military keep doing uh, or keep doing the military operation we never know the number of casualties right because also like it's it's a, a it's a hilly region like you don't know about the the area well for the indonesian uh, military operation and at the same time it's also to gain attention in english to gain attention for the international world for the international mm-hmm. organization because um, again, I'm quoting uh, uh, my conversation with Fritz last night. If this continues, it is not impossible that there will be intervention by the UN Human Rights Council, because uh, they can just uh, sending like a special force or special officer who doesn't need, who doesn't really need approval from Indonesia. Mm. So again, this is uh, Indonesian government should understand or should uh, taking it as a challenge to have a negotiation, a peaceful negotiation. Yes, yes, because, I mean, it's important to remember, isn't it, Erwin, that it's been three months that Philip Mertens has been in hostage. Yes. It was it's, mm. He was kidnapped three months ago. Um, what has the Indonesian military and, and you know, perhaps, as you said, other international um, bodies done to, to get his release? Well, um as I mentioned before, and again, um, uh, you're right. It's, it's been three months, and uh, as far as we know, it has been three, at least three videos mm-hmm. that we know so far released uh, uh, through uh, to media, right? 
from the three videos, we, we haven't seen any progress from this. And uh, again, uh, again, the criticism is because the Indonesian military still keep doing the military operation, which is that is not the right approach for uh, handling this case. Mm. What they want, and it's very clear since the beginning, it's very clear that what they want is more negotiation and have a peaceful talk. Mm. And we, ha- we haven't really seen this coming from the Indonesian government. And as in like um, exercising the d- diplomacy skills, you know, I'm really sorry for saying a uh, very, um, you know, like a strong word, the diplomacy skill. But this one has been questioned as well by the human rights activists. I'm just quoting them. Yes, yes. Very interesting um, to see how that peaceful negotiation and peaceful resolution to this hostage crisis might yes. be achieved. Um, what's the feeling uh, there in Indonesia about uh, Papua and about this crisis, Erwin? Is there much support for the separatist movement or, you know, the, the, larger, um, the larger call here for independence of this Papua, West Papua region? Well, the, um, the public opinion has been uh, divided. Uh, from what I've observed from the Indonesian social media users, for example, because also the armed group is asking a help, like military help through uh, Australia and New Zealand, right? Mm. So they said like, oh, this is another intervention, a foreign intervention to Indonesia. But at the same time, like for many human rights activists, they said um, this is actually also like uh, showing the lack of diplomacy skill that we have, the Indonesian government has. So it has been divided between uh, uh, the, the public and the opinions, uh, particularly on social media. Th- there is one side that's saying uh, uh, do not interfere the, uh, the, 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 the Papuan issue because uh, as, as you may aware, like many Indo- Indonesians also think that uh, there are too many interventions from the uh, foreign, uh, foreign uh, countries especially from Australia and New Zealand in, in terms of uh, uh, Papua. And also, uh, you know, some accusation from uh, accusation to the Pacific countries mm-hmm. by, um, by supporting the free West Papua movement. We can't deny that, that there is an accusation um, uh, that, uh, you know, um, th- th- there is a support there. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, as we know that Australia is also uh, respected the Indonesian sovereignty, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to see after this video what the Indonesian government actually will have. Will they will go on with the negotiation and skill and probably perhaps, uh, like I mentioned before, seeing our experience with the free Aceh movement, um, whether they're go- going to uh, appoint it like, um, uh, like a, a figure, uh, well, Fritz, um, last night saying maybe Sanana Guzmao or uh, mm. anyone who, 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 who won the Nobel Prize could be uh, the right person because they have the experience in dealing with this. You yes. know, it's just a matter from both parties if they really want to have the discussion and peaceful thoughts. Yes, very interesting, a very deli- delicate situation there, Erwin. And um, yes, we, we continue to, to hope for a peaceful resolution um, to that hostage crisis there. Um, thank you, Erwin, for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you for having me. That was supervising producer for ABC's Indonesia team, Erwin uh, Rinaldi, speaking to us there about uh, that latest video on that New Zealand pilot cap- captured by the West Papuan Liberation Army. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Priyanka Srinivasan.
The World Health Organization has issued an alert after finding contaminated cough medicine in the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia. The WHO issued the warning after checking samples of the cough syrup called guaifenicin syrup, TG syrup. Joining us now to talk about that latest finding is Dr. Michael Noonan, a trained pharmacist and health system specialist who's worked extensively across the Pacific. Good morning, Michael. Michael. Good morning, Priyanka. How are you? Yes, very well. And I'm um, interested to hear more detail about this uh, contaminated cough syrup. How worrying is this alert from WHO? Oh, it's really worrying. I, yeah, this issue's been rolling on. The latest iteration of it's been rolling on since last year. Um, and since then, uh, outside of the Pacific, they estimate there's been about 300 deaths in children. So it's, it's definitely something to be concerned about. Mm. Yes, you mentioned those deaths there. I understand um, in several other countries they were they were identified li- linked to other syrups. Though, um, could this this situation be just as serious? Oh, absolutely. Yeah the the two ingredients, ethylene glycol and diethylene glycol, which they've been finding, um, are uh, used as a replacement for an ingredient called glycerine. Now, glycerine is used across a whole range of different cough medicines and and other products so um the in, in this case it's uh, the active ingredient is called guafenosine um, which is used as a cough syrup but it's also been found in products with folkadine uh, and and other um, active ingredients in them so it's it's a whole range of cough medicines and potentially other products as well so it's yeah it's pretty concerning mm. um, can you tell us about what those um, two contaminant contaminants actually are diethylene um, and ethylene glycol as you said replacements for glycerine or what what can they actually um, do to the body yeah, so the reason that they get replaced is because glycerine is quite expensive. It's become more expensive over the last couple of years and it's in short supply. So glycerine is used in all sorts of industrial manufacturing and for all sorts of human products where you wouldn't notice if it gets replaced, um, like, for example, alcohol hand wash. So they use ethylene glycol and diethylene glycol as a sort of cheap substitute um, and the manufacturers who are producing that raw ingredient then label it as glycerine they can sell it for more and and then there's manufacturers downstream who who get it and don't know what they're dealing with um, obviously when that gets its way into products that are used you know for human consumption it's it's a huge problem because it causes well it can cause confusion it can cause dizziness and and that sort of thing at low doses but then at high doses it can cause kidney failure um, and and can kill well, it can kill all sorts of people, but children are particularly vulnerable, obviously. Oh, wow. I mean, if you're saying, Michael, that these are sort of used as a substitute, it sounds like it was a cost-cutting mes- measure. Are there questions to be asked about how these were let out of the country? I understand they originated from India. And what steps were taken by governments in the various countries to protect them? I mean, particularly in the Pacific, are there actually um, – is there the ability for governments to check these shipments that come in? and make sure they're safe for use. Yeah, it's such a tricky one. So I I think when incidents like this occur, it is made clear to everyone just how complex the supply chains are. In this particular case, it seems like the products have come out of India. They've gone through Cambodia. They may have gone through other wholesalers. This stuff isn't tracked that well, but um, specifically it's come out of Cambodia on its way to 
FSM and the Marshalls. And um, and when it's arrived there, it can be really, really difficult, if not impossible, to tell where those raw ingredients um, have come from. And as we know in the Pacific, and it has been has has been discussed on this show before, the Pacific Islands uh, don't have a huge capacity to check the origins of of where this stuff is coming from, mm. particularly in the private sector. There's not a lot of um, regulatory uh, oversight of what comes into the private sector um, due to you know resourcing and, and sort of capacity. So. Uh, I, I don't put the blame at the feet of the Marshall Islands or FSM in the slightest. Um, they, you know, the Pacific Islands are all doing their best to keep this stuff out, and this particular issue has been seen in a huge number of places in the last 12 months, ranging from um, Gambia in mm. in Africa to Uzbekistan, uh, Timor Leste, uh, Senegal. It's it's pretty widespread at the moment. Mm, very interesting. And and just to, I guess, put some minds at ease, um, the WHO, we, we reached out to them and they said the clinicians in FSM in Marshall Islands have been given a list of possible symptoms to look out for and um, to follow up with patients who were administered the, the, this product, this cough syrup. Um, they said that that administration has, has or that um, follow-up has been done and fortunately they have not found, at least yet, any adverse events or medical complaints. Um, now, you, you did mention there, Michael, that, that there is this difficulty for Pacific um, countries to, to check these shipments and where they come from. Now, we found that these samples have been identified in, in um, Micronesian marshals, but how likely is it that other Pacific countries might be affected? Are they, do they have some similar supply chains? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they've got got highly similar um, supply chains. Not necessarily the same wholesalers, but the wholesalers tend to use um, you know similar manufacturers across the region. So yeah, all countries should be looking for this at the moment, um, particularly in the private sector. Um, and it's something that I'm sure both WHO and the Australian TGA are supporting um, Pacific Island countries with. There's actually something practical that Pacific Islanders um, can do um, straight away in regards to this particular problem. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that it will solve overall problems. And it's don't use cough syrups in your kids. They don't work. Um, oh, really? And so if, that's right. So guafenacine is actually not um, used in, in the public sector. Um, this is a private sector item. There's a lot of marketing around it, but um, it's widely understood that guafenacine does not work for... Um, what it's supposed to do, which is to use in marketing terms, breaking up a cough or, or it's, it's an expectorant that, um, that is supposed to make it easier for your kids to, to cough up what's on their lungs. It, it doesn't work. Um, and where you've got cough suppressants in syrups, um, you shouldn't be suppressing your kid's cough in that way. So um, the practical advice to all Pacific Islanders is don't go to your local pharmacy or to your local store and get cough syrups for your kids. They simply don't work. Oh, well, that's good, good advice and, and something I didn't know either, Michael. So, so um, when, you, when your children do have a, a cough, um, what, what is the best alternative? Well, I, I mean, the first thing is, you know, if you can get into your clinic and see, um, see your nurse or, or, you know, a, a doctor, depending on which country you're in, um, there are often underlying causes for your kids' coughs that can be treated. Um, and when I say cough syrups, I mean products that are labelled as cough syrups and sold in the private sector. Um, the the nurses and doctors can give your kids some things um, for their coughs, and that might include antibiotics, 
Uh, often costs are caused by asthma or underlying conditions that can be can be treated by inhalers. Um, and occasionally, um, your your child's cough can be treated by liquids that contain steroids, but they're liquids that you go and get from the clinic. They're not the sort of thing that you would buy over the counter because the dosing on them is quite important. So if your child has a persistent cough uh, or a cough with a fever um, or a cough where their breathing seems to have changed, go to the clinic um, and, and get them looked at because respiratory infections can be really, really dangerous. They can be really, um, they can get worse quickly. Um, but whatever the case, whatever is the cause of your child's cough, just using cough syrups that you go to a private shop to buy is not going to solve the problem. Um, and in fact, in some cases can delay getting proper treatment um, if, the, if the underlying cause is, is quite nasty. Oh, well, that's some good advice there, Michael. And, and I guess the added benefit is that you can um, avoid this, this problem of uh, contaminated cough syrup, syrups altogether as well, um, because it sounds like it's, it's not even needed to have a cough syrup. Um, but what, what is the advice that you would give for, for people who, who might have, um, who might be in Marshall Islands or, or Micronesia might have used cough syrup there? Um, I understand citizens in those countries were asked to return the medicine to the pharmacy if they if they do have it at home. But if people have any niggling questions, what what can they do if they do have cough syrup in their house who have used it recently? Yeah, so that's a really um, that's a really tough question because it's it's difficult to put on parents to look out for the symptoms. But uh, looking out for things like dizziness, uh, your kids reporting confusion or anything like that. Uh, anything in your kids that seems to you to be unusual, because in all cases, the parents know their kids best, um, should be a prompt to to go and get them checked out. Um, but if they've had this specific um, uh, cough medicine or, or your kids have used cough medicine in FSM or, um, or Marshall Islands uh, in the last couple of months, um, it's probably worth going and getting them checked out regardless without wanting to flood them um, with people. This is an acute effect. If they used it two months ago and you can see nothing in your kids that seems concerning, it's probably not something you need to be worried about. But if you notice any effects in your kids that to you seem unusual or they've used it quite recently um, in the last couple of weeks, it's, it's probably worth going and getting them just looked at um, just to make sure that there's no sort of lingering effects because kidney damage can be quite can be quite insidious. But so far across the rest of the Pacific, this hasn't been detected anywhere else. So there's no need to rush to, um, you know, to clinics across the Pacific to, to get your kids looked at. But um, I would take those cough syrups and um, if you've got them from, from private vendors, I, I would go and throw them in the bin, to be, <laughs> to be frank. That's, that's what I'd do as a parent. Yes, yes. Well, considering that they might not, well, they don't work, as you said, um, that does seem like wise advice. And finally, Michael, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, is there a, a larger solution here? You, know, you talked about the difficulties of monitoring um, supply chains, particularly of these medicines, um, particularly in the Pacific. Um, is there a larger solution to avoid this happening in the future? Yeah, well, this is the this is the million dollar question. Of course, countries are working on this, and and I think the fact that they were detected is a testament to the work that's happening. Um, that the products are being tested across the region. Um, these problems are being identified, and and products are being removed from the market. So, it's it's not quite as as you know as bad as people think. The products got in, but they've detected them. Um, I, the wider solution is, is a long-term solution. Both WHO and, and the Australian TGA, through 
DFAT have been doing a lot of work through the region in supporting countries to test products that are coming in and also to strengthen um, regulatory uh, uh, sort of mechanisms and then also compliance with those. So um, that is putting in greater oversight of who the manufacturers are that are producing these things and, and, and who the wholesalers are that are supplying them and, and making sure that we can see end-to-end -end on the supply chains. But I, I would add very, very gently, and with a few caveats, that mm -hmm. most of that work is being done in the public sector. At the moment, there's not as much work being done in the private sector. Now, that's a bit of a generalisation, but, but generally speaking, in the private sector, in the Pacific, the oversight is not as strong. And that's not to say that everything in private pharmacies across the Pacific is of low quality, but um, so far, most of the work has, has focused on the public sector. So that is hospitals, public clinics, health centres um, who are sourcing their items through, you know, government channels um, where it's much, much easier to apply regulatory oversight because they're coming in through national warehouses. So it, it's it's food for thought if you're if you're going out and, and getting stuff for your kids. But that said, in a lot of countries as well, the private sector is is pretty good. Um, they do uh, some self-regulation and then there is regulatory oversight of imports. So it's it's not quite a, a sort of disastrous situation, but it, it, there is food for thought that, um, that, that there's a lot more work to be done in the private sector. Yes, yes, food for thought indeed. Well, Michael, thank you. You've, um, you've at least helped me. And I, I know when I go home, I'll be checking my um, medicine cabinets for cough syrup and, and throwing them in the bin because it sounds like they don't work, um, as you said. So thank you so much for, for those insights and many more this morning. Thanks, Priyanka. No trouble. That was Dr. Michael Noonan, a trained pharmacist and health system specialist who's worked extensively across the Pacific, talking to us about that batch of, of um, contaminated cough syrups in Federated States of Micronesia and in the Marshall Islands. Important information there. Um, great, great to have insights on that, on that very important issue. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. Turning our attention to the Silver W Grand Final, Fijiana Drew beats the New South Wales Waratahs at 32-26. About the 60-minute mark, we're deep in the trenches. We're kind of fighting from behind and then the crowd just broke out in a hymn. It kind of gave me like the warm and fuzzies, but at the same time, like, where are all the Aussie fans? Like, get around your Waratahs. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific? Thursday night, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. That's right. It's time. It's that time on Pacific Beat where we, as usual, look at the headlines across the Pacific. But not so usual is who's joining me this morning, which is Pacific Beat executive producer, Evan Wasuka. Good morning, Evan. Good morning, Priyanka. Yeah, good to jump in for Kyle Evans, who's on leave. Uh, so I'm glad to be here to chat with you. Yes, celebrating his sister's wedding, I believe. So um, all the best to the Evans family there. Um, now, let's start with a story we've been covering um, a bit here on Pacific Beach, and that's the measles outbreak in American Samoa. What's the latest there, Evan? So, Priyanka, the ABC and AFP are reporting that a public health emergency has now been declared in American Samoa by the territory's governor, Lemanu Maunga. And as we had reported, as you had reported earlier this week, mm -hmm. there is still that one confirmed case, and now there are 31 suspected cases of measles. They're still waiting for tests to come back from Hawaii. 
Uh, in the meantime, a massive immunization campaign is still going on, and uh, that's still ramping up. Uh, the key things officials in American Samoa are trying to do is to ensure that this doesn't lead into a deadly outbreak. So far, um, the conditions of the, the patients are still good. Um, and the other day when you spoke to Dr. Scott Adnessi from the Ministry of Health in Samoa, and he, he spoke about the possible travel bans. So, well, that's now been uh, put into place. Um, uh, next door in Samoa, they have this rule where travelers coming in from American Samoa must now show proof of measles vaccination, and children under two must at least have one dose of that vaccination. Uh, so far, daycare centers have been closed, uh, as well as primary schools in American Samoa. Other measures that are also in place, uh, they've stopped travel, uh, they've closed down the inter-island ferry, and uh, as I said, they're still waiting for test results to come through. Uh, they're taking this very seriously, given the history of measles around that area in Samoa. We saw that big major outbreak in 2019, 2020, where 83 people, including, well, mostly children, were killed in that outbreak. Yeah, quite the tragedy there. And uh, and I mean, it's 2019, just a few years ago. I'm sure, so I'm sure that's fresh in everyone's memory. And yes, it goes to explain the, the tough measures that American Samoa are, are introducing, as you said, Evan, the closing of schools. And 31 suspected cases. So it really has, um, you know, we were reporting 29 earlier. And so there's been a, a, a uptick. Hopefully it stops there. And um, hopefully those suspected cases end up being negative cases um, when those lab tests do return. But I guess they are treating them as, as suspected cases. Um, the yeah. doctor was saying that they all have to isolate. That's right. And they moved very fast in response to this uh, outbreak. Yes, indeed, indeed. Very fast indeed. Um, now let's head to, to Fiji. Frank Bainimarama is no longer the prime minister there, um, but his son, Ratu Meli Bainimarama, is facing further problems in Australian courts. What's the latest there, Evan? That's right, Priyanka. So this story is from the Fijian Broadcasting Corporation, and they're reporting that Ratu Meli Bainimarama is heading back to court again, this time on fresh charges of apprehended violence in New South Wales. Uh, so just a quick recap, um, Ratumeli is right now currently out on bail in relation to 17 charges. Uh, now, these range from common assault, intimidation, uh, actual bodily harm and choking. So this is a different separate case, uh, which happened last year. We've covered it on ABC as well at the time. Uh, but this new charge is uh, is a new matter and it's listed for court on Tuesday, where he'll also again appear in New South Wales as for his other case, that 17 charges, that matter is scheduled for hearing on June the 23rd. So um, definitely he's still in the spotlight, this Ratu Meli Bainimarama. And we'll see what comes out of the courts uh, when when that matter comes before the court. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and you can stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia. That key date is June 23rd when that hearing for those um, first set of charges will be heard and um, we'll bring you the latest and report on what we can here on ABC. Um, and now we can't end uh, a news wrap, Evan, without a bit of geopolitics. So tell us, what's the latest out of uh, Samoa? So Samoa, the Samoa Observer newspaper is reporting that Chan Bo, this is the China special envoy, has met with Prime Minister Fiame uh, Naomi Matafa in Samoa uh, so Chan Bo is China's special envoy to the Pacific, is also the former ambassador to Fiji. And the paper is quoting him as saying that, uh, well, he's gone uh, uh, out declaring that, you know, China is friend of the Pacific. China's there. He's there. There's no other ulterior motives. 
And he said they're also looking at considering requests of further aid from the Samoa government. Uh, what exactly these requests are, it's not clear just yet. Uh, but Chanbo has been on this tour of the Pacific. He he was earlier in the Federated States of Micronesia. He was in Papua New Guinea. And now he's just visiting other parts. He's, it's a new role that he's in. It's mm. only created back in February. Uh, certainly lots of eyes on him as he moves around the Pacific. Chanbo is uh, quite a colorful character. Um, he was identified in that letter by uh, David Panuelo, the outgoing president of Federated States of Micronesia. Um, so we'll see where his travels take him next and what comes out out of all these uh, movements around the Pacific. Yes, indeed. Yes. Um, it's been a few months that he's been moving around and I guess um, settling into that new role. And yes, I- interesting to see uh, some of those allegations made by that outgoing uh, president of Federated of the Federated States of Micronesia who, yes, outed Chanbo and his, um, his uh, alleged, uh, some, some allegations, I guess, that he Done in the Pacific. Um, yes, you can you can see our previous reporting on ABC Pacific to get some more details there. Um, but in the meantime, Evan, thank you so much for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Is it appropriate to spend aid money on a sporting event? That's the question being asked about Australia's $17 million contribution to help Solomon Islands host the Pacific Games later this year. Critics say the development benefits are questionable and the real motivation behind the grant is to counter China's involvement. Liam Fox with this report. $17 million might not sound like much money in the context of Australia's $4.6 billion aid budget. But Professor Stephen Howes, Director of the Development Policy Centre, believes it is, as it represents more than 16% of Australia's $100 million aid program to Solomon Islands this financial year. He says it's also comparable to the money Australia has provided to the responses to recent humanitarian crises. It's a significant amount of money uh, compared to the amount of money we've contributed to, you know, to real crisis situations. So think about the massive floods in Pakistan. Uh, We've only provided $10 million. Think about the Turkey-Syria earthquake, you know, where 41,000 people died and 1.5 million people are homeless. And we gave about the same amount, $18 as we're giving to the uh, Pacific Island Games. Perhaps more importantly, he says the grant breaks internationally accepted rules that exclude funding for sporting events from being considered as aid. You know, we often make the case that the international order should be rules-based. So here's a a clear example where we could uh, put that into practice and and where it looks like we're not, and that's just going to cause sort of uh, cynicism about Australia's position in general. Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade says the money will be used to fund seven positions for Solomon's sporting officials, refurbish dormitories at six schools to house visiting athletes, sporting equipment for the National Institute of Sport and construct a temporary marine centre for water sports. In response to questions from Professor Howes, the department said the funding is linked to activities that will not only benefit the Games, but will also deliver longer-term social benefits, including for young Solomon Islanders. He says that may be the case for money spent on dormitories and sporting equipment, but not for sporting officials or a temporary marine centre. The real motivation, he believes, is to counter China which is providing around $100 million to build the game's main stadium in Honiara. 
There's no doubt we're doing it because China's doing it. It's a sign of the, the risks that we face if we really uh, reorient our aid program you know, to be used in a kind of strategic competition with China, uh, that we're going to uh, face these issues around sort of skirting around the rules and that we're going to end up responding to low-priority causes. Mark Purcell from the Australian Council for International Development says sports development is a legitimate area for aid funding. The public health benefits of having your population engaged in sport and indeed there are are many active programs targeting young women uh, to get them involved in sport. Uh, It has benefits not just in health but also in leadership skills. But Mr Purcell sees the funding for the Pacific Games as more of an infrastructure project, one clearly aimed at countering China's involvement. All of which is understandable, if not desirable, he says, in the current geostrategic environment. But it leaves Australia playing catch-up rather than focusing on its development strengths. And that would be investment in long-term human capital in health and education agricultural resilience and tackling climate change. That's where Australia can make a difference. That's where we have runs on the board. And frankly, that's not an area that China can compete on in the Solomon Islands or anywhere else in the Pacific at this point in time. That was Mark Purcell from the Australian Centre for International Development ending that report from Liam Fox. And Pacific Beat has approached the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade for comment. When they get back to you, we well, well when they get back to us, we'll let you know what they have to say. The head of the United Nations Population Fund says women in the Pacific are feeling the burden of the climate crisis. The agency's executive director, Dr. Natalie Kahnem, who's in Fiji this week, says women across the region are paying the price for global warming. She says international countries can help women and girls in the region deal with the climate crisis. The climate crisis is disastrous and everyone has to take action. Not just people in the Pacific, but many of the people who are creating the climate issues have to take action. The Secretary General of the United Nations has been a leader in this fight, as well as the uh, Prime Minister of Fiji, who on the world stage has been really persuasive. If you are a woman or a girl caught up in climate crisis, who is there to think about your needs? And in fact, it's very sad that when your livelihood is taken away, you go to desperate measures in order to feed your family. And so a lot of these desperate measures are not good for women and girls. And things like uh, unsafe uh, uh, liaisons, sex work, violence, and on and on uh, increase. For younger adolescent girls, it's also a disaster because not only is your education interrupted, your health services are interrupted, but people can start to look at you as somebody vulnerable that can be victimized. So if you don't know your rights, and if we haven't helped you to stand up for yourself, some random person may think that they can knock you over, and we have to make sure that this girl stands up. Moreover, uh, the challenge, and this is one, again, we're international solidarity. I've mentioned Australia and uh, New Zealand, Canada, so many other countries that UNFPA is working with, as well as the governments of the Pacific that are investing in their countries, when you have such a scale of destruction that you have to rebuild, that also affects women. 
because they're the ones who are the gatekeepers of the family. They're the ones who have to comfort uh, the family when the house literally blows down. And this takes a heavy psychological toll on the women of the Pacific, who of course are strong, but everybody has to have support in, a, you know, in order to, to, to blossom and fulfill their potential. So I want to thank the social workers of the Pacific as well, and UNFPA works with a lot of counselors who do important work. You know, when you've been traumatized and you can have that little support, it sort of helps you to square your shoulders and walk ahead. That was Dr. Natalie Canem from the United Nations Population Fund. When you want to grow dragon fruit in Samoa, expert help can be hard to come by. So one farmer found an unlikely ally in a, form, in a fellow farmer in Queensland. Megan Hughes has this story. Organic coffee and cocoa Samoa farmer Meli Mawala wanted to learn more about growing dragon fruit. That's still new to her country. And on a trip to Rockhampton in central Queensland, she reached out to a local farmer. Dragon fruit is a relatively new fruit to Samoa, but um, it's taking up speed and people are really enjoying it. And we're also finding it's a low-maintenance plant to grow, so it's one of the plants we'd like to see expand and grow in Samoa. But for that reason, we need to know a little bit more about it and the diversity of varieties that are available. And Rockhampton has a really lovely dragon fruit grower. His name's Gary Lee of Lee's Dragon Fruit. We went to go visit him to find out more. Gary Lee grows around 90 different varieties on his farm in central Queensland. As well as selling the fruit, Mr Lee sells cuttings and said he often gets inquiries from overseas, but not from someone wanting to start an industry in another country. We have had inquiries from different places around the world just on, through our online store or they've messages through Facebook and that sort of thing. But in actual fact, to have somebody come here that wanted to do some stuff. We did have another fella from um, one of the Malaysian countries, a doctor that was um, working here. He wanted to look at some stuff as well to try and improve what he had on his farm. So it's probably not the first time, but it's not something commonplace. We, we do get a lot of people from around um, Australia itself. The industry itself, like, you know, obviously there is a level of competition. You're working with other businesses, but it sounds like there is a level of collaboration as well. The hardest part about dragon fruit is in Australia, there wasn't or isn't a lot of people that know a great deal about them, to be honest. Unfortunately, even for us, you know, it's a bit trial and error and you make a few mistakes and then you've got to rectify that because um, it is difficult for people um, to find people that can help you and on the other hand, and wanting to help you because, yes, you know, you still got that competition. He offered them technical advice on things like soil requirements for the fruit, but also gave a taste test of some of the varieties. There was one called American Beauty, and we all said, oh, this is a beauty. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, and it was beautiful too. The colour was so rich and garnet. It was just lovely to look at, um, but it was really lovely um, to taste as well. I think some people think dragon fruit can be quite a bland fruit if they have not been exposed to the variety uh, that exists. And we were really lucky because we got to taste quite a few in a row. We could see the, the broad palette of flavours 
flavor that actually dragon fruit can offer. So I can understand why Gary is a bit passionate about it. As well as farming herself, Ms Mawala is an executive board member with the Samoa Women's Association of Growers. They hosted a workshop on the tropical fruit earlier this year in hopes of developing the industry. So we saw there was so much enthusiasm and interest. I think also because um, it's a low-maintenance fruit, you don't have to do too much in terms of setting it up. It's also quite um, visually appealing, so lots of restaurants and hotels, the hospitality sector would like it. It's low in sugar, so we have a high NCD rate in Samoa, so to have fruit that's low in sugar, that's still tasty, was important. And uh, it's quite beautiful, so... So uh, I think we were all a little bit uh, bedazzled by it. (laughs) So where to from here in regards to establishing this as an industry back home? I think the first thing is to be able to um, provide more variety. Right now there's only one variety, and I'm sorry I don't have the official name, but we call it the white variety in Samoa, so it's the white flesh. Right now it's quite an expensive fruit. It's 20 tala per fruit, which is about, I guess, 10 Australian dollars. And uh, that means that really it's not something that can be eaten commonly um, in the household. It would really be sold to the hospitality sector. So we'd really love to encourage more women's committees and youth committees in village-based areas to start growing it. As we said, it's because it's so low maintenance, setting it up is not too difficult. And, and then we'd love to see how we can expand. That was Samoan farmer Millie Moala ending that report from Megan Hughes. In the Fale is a brand new music show on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by me, Paola Tukefu. I'll be spinning my favourite tunes from dancehall to disco, calypso to country, reggae to roots and hip-hop to house music. From across the era to keep the kids and the aunties happy. If it has a pumping groove, I'll be bringing it to you to bump you into the weekend. In the Fale, Fridays at 2pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. We're just coming up to the end of our Pacific Beach show for this Thursday morning. Um, if you are just tuning in, early on the show we had Erwin Ronaldi. He's the head of ABC's Indonesia team. And he was speaking to us about this new video that's come out of a New Zealand pilot, Philip Mertens. He's the one who's being held captive by separatists in the Indonesian province of West Papua. Uh, he has been held captive. He's been taken hostage for about three months now. And in the video, Mr. Mertens spoke about being in the same area that was being bombed by Indonesia. The bombing could be an airstrike that was uh, being uh, carried out by the Indonesian military in the relocation to keep the armed group, the West Papua Liberation Army, away and could mobilize the Indonesian military. That was Erwin Rinaldi there. And we also spoke to Dr. Michael Noonan about a contaminated cough syrup that's turned up in the Federated States of Micronesia and Marshall Islands. The practical advice to all Pacific Islanders is don't go to your local pharmacy or to your local store and get cough syrups for your kids. They simply don't work. If you want to revisit any of those stories, do head to our ABC Pacific website. That's it from me for this Thursday. Hope you have a lovely day. 